practitioner is encouraged to seek out novel qualities in their demon the more they practice. Then, they are to ask their demon three questions. What do you want from me? What do you need from me? And how will you feel if you get what you need? This is Francis Garrett. In this episode of Footnotes, we'll hear from Jonathan Morgan, who was a student in a graduate class I taught this winter on Buddhism and healing at the University of Toronto. Jonathan has been really interested in the role of the so-called demonic forces in Buddhism and their role in healing. In this episode, Jonathan tells a story of his research into deities and nature spirits, weaving through his own experiences with the sacred through immersion in nature. He explores how various scholars have explained demonic forces in Buddhism and their role in Buddhist understandings of karma, ethics, cosmology, and salvation. He describes how demons play a role in Buddhist scriptures and how they're important players in many Buddhist ritual practices, including healing rituals. Jonathan then introduces us to a meditative practice that involves visualizing and working with our own inner demons for the purpose of healing. Uh, My name is Jonathan Morgan. I'm currently in the process of wrapping up a master's of pastoral studies with a certificate in spiritual care and psychotherapy at Emmanuel College in the University of Toronto. I've been in the Buddhist dream in that program. Spiritual care used to be referred to as chaplaincy and has traditionally had more of a role in the provision of care to those in hospital, prison, or military settings. While my focus is oriented towards psychotherapy, Buddhist pursuits have manifested throughout my adult life through meditation practices and in a Buddhist psychology minor as part of my undergraduate degree. I've never been part of a consistent religious or spiritual community, including a Sangha, though philosophical and ontological leanings have long resonated with Buddhist perspectives. I grew up in a secular household in small town central Ontario, while my family background is rooted in Protestantism. Initial explorations with spirituality arose in adolescence with quasi-Wiccan or, more appropriately, pagan leanings. This suited my love and ventures into the natural realms that I was brought up in and extended into the rivers, lakes, and forests of northern Ontario. After undergoing the first significant loss of a loved one, that of my father in my early 20s, I decided to purposefully develop my cognitive framework to one that included a spiritual lens. This was my first foray into Buddhism, which began with my participation in a Buddhist Vipassana Insight Meditation Retreat. In hindsight, this was a giant step for a meditation novice, and consequently, perhaps not the ideal place to process the loss of my dad, with whom I had a complicated relationship. Nonetheless, I became exposed to a practice and a viewpoint that has incongruously, and I suppose surprisingly, reiterated itself over the past 20 years. If necessary to identify myself within a Buddhist context, perhaps secular Buddhist suits me best at the moment. The focus of this podcast episode is the role of the demonic in Buddhism, particularly Tibetan Buddhism. It is a component of a graduate course entitled Buddhism and Healing, offered from the Department for the Study of Religion at the University of Toronto. 
For me, growing up in Canada, my exposure to demons was loosely associated with Satan, horror films, gothic novels, and ghost stories, wherein they are the antithesis to what is considered just and good. Typically, they are presented as being hell-bent on proliferating destruction and whatever constitutes their particular brand of evil. In my contact with Buddhism, it seemed that demons represented something different, and I was curious. Not because I am particularly drawn to gore, however, my studies in the realm of psychotherapy certainly highlight the importance of identifying and coming to terms with one's shadow in order to overcome distress and for healing. I wondered, is there a way that Western modes of understanding one's inner demons corresponds to Buddhist understandings of the demonic? I was also curious to know if the historical merging of the indigenous and animistic Tibetan Bon religion with Buddhism rendered the demonic less starkly evil as is more typical of Western notions. Being of settler heritage in Turtle Island or Canada, I have wondered if the deities and nature spirits associated with the original inheritance exist to those who know nothing of them. Certainly my most potent spiritual realizations have occurred while in natural realms. Growing up without a religious structure to guide me, I would wonder what underlay my direct experience with the sacred. I knew that deities that existed for the various indigenous nations of Turtle Island were not my own, but I was curious what spirits inhabited these ancient landscapes. My pagan leanings share an animistic worldview that, though different, are consistent with spiritualities the world over. So in learning more about nature spirits in a Tibetan perspective, I wanted to know how that non-theastic religion, Buddhism, complements one that sees a world of spirits. Religious studies professor at Louisiana State University, Gail Hendricks Sutherland says, that from a Buddhist perspective, it could be understood that demons are substantially non-existent Rather, they are more like powers or forces to work with. It is the wisdom, skill, and compassion of a Buddhist practitioner that determines the effect of a demonic encounter. Certainly, the Buddha himself is said to have been able to defeat the demons of greed, aversion, and ignorance that constituted that greatest demon, Mara. Sutherland explains how, within the Buddhist framework, any being can improve their karma, ranging from animals to ghosts to demons, and so as a result, there is no such thing as a supreme evil. Demons are difficult, but they're not disastrous. Instead, they can be seen as barriers to overcome by way of ritual, placation offerings, or by practicing detachment. Consequently, to learn through stories of the suffering inflicted upon demons in hell realms is to be cautioned on the importance of maintaining diligence in one's spiritual efforts in order to bolster one's karma. Sutherland says that another way of understanding demons is that they are symbolic of the natural order, a manifestation of the unknown, a fecundity, or decay. If left unchecked, they could overturn the order of humans. So, while it is in the best interest of humans to control demons, they must also respect their powers because they are related to us as phenomena of nature. Morality in Buddhism is developed through the deep understanding of the interdependence of all beings and phenomena as, is, as it is because of this realization that a duty to virtue and compassion arises. There is no ultimate evil or good because of the dynamic nature of the universe wherein change is constant and because of the interconnectedness of all beings. From this springs forth various cosmologies that describe the various lives one can be 
be reborn into according to their karma. Distinctive hells constitute differing punishments and the demons who dispense them. In his book, Pneumatology and the Christian Buddhist Dialogue, Amos Young contributes to an interreligious dialogue by examining how the two traditions compare and contrast. Amos's chapter, Demons in Buddhism, demonstrates that demons can be viewed from a lens of salvation, from the perspective that they highlight the positive qualities necessary to overcome an entanglement with a demon. Thus, demons could be seen as resistant to human enlightenment, whilst simultaneously highlighting a way to enlightenment. Young reflects that demons, like humans, do not possess an ultimate or permanent self and are therefore at the mercy of samsara or the cycle of rebirth. They could be benign or malevolent. He references the Digam Nikaya, a Buddhist scripture that is the first of five collections in the Sutta Pitaka, or one of the three baskets that compose the sacred scriptures of Theravada Buddhism. Yang says, quote, To begin with, Mara and his daughters, the Devas, oppose the Buddha and the spread of enlightenment. He obstructs the practicing of meditation, attempts to prevent the living out of the Eightfold Path, and hinders the proclamation of the Dharma by appearing in variously attractive, especially the Devas, or repulsive guises often accompanied by disturbing noises and terrifying phenomena, such as landscapes or earthquakes, end quote. Young says that depending on the re- region, it's possible to encounter hierarchies of heavens, hells, and earthly realms that are awash in ever-changing natural, spiritual, and supernatural beings. Those that are morally ambiguous show up in the categories of protectors and devas, who may sometimes be considered gods and other times be considered demigods, demons, monsters, or devils. At times, These may be considered part of a single being, though not simultaneously. From one perspective, Mara and the Devas serve as symbols of the demonic to be understood as personal beings in the human realm, while preserving supernatural features retained by heavenly creatures at a cosmic level, as well as demonic features retained by inhabitants of underworlds. Yang uses a Pali term, petas, which relates to persons who have passed on. Those who were or are unhappy may appear as grotesque monsters, but they are really just those suffering spirits who are burdened by the effects of karmic seeds planted in their previous life. Considering this, the aim of having tales that revolve around these unfortunates is to highlight what happens when or if an individual leads a non-virtuous life, particularly when considering a good layperson's role in maintaining social harmony, as in a layperson giving to monastics or to others. However, Yang writes that there is still the belief existing in various Buddhist traditions that bad luck is also caused by demons who are understood primarily to be unhappy ancestors, as these would constitute the unrighteous actions of another's past life. Thus, it would be prudent to improve one's karma by placating these entities or perhaps taking part in exorcisms if it's a spirit possession as opposed to that of an ancestor. With a focus on demons in Tibet, Yang says that in Tibet, exorcisms incorporate sacrificial articles and offerings, quote, oracular possession, prophetic trance, which is a type of shamanism, various methods of divination, destructive magic, as well as protection against black magic, and the rite of weathermaking, unquote. The ritual and contemplative practice called cha, meaning cutting off, and spelled in English as though it looks like chod, C-H-O-D, is employed to help a person understand the deceptive nature of the mind. Here, demons or hindrances, 
epitomize the defiant impulses that can be generated from within. Through visualizing the cutting up of the body, an individual is able to detach from the illusion of selfhood and to detach from a particular demonic affliction that they may be troubled with. Thus, the aim of Cha would be liberation of the self and demonic detachment. In this sense, both beings are seen to be swept up in their own cycles of suffering and rebirth. According to Yang, a text called the Heart Sutra is used by Tibetan exorcists because it talks about an awakened wise one realizing the inherent emptiness of all phenomena, including the qualities of mind that would have obstructed a clear comprehension of reality. Thus, it is a potent remedy for any demon as the Buddha and the Dharma, in the form of the Heart Sutra, bring order into the cosmos. When considering doctrinal perspectives on Buddhist demonologies, Yang proposes a Buddhist hermeneutic of the demonic. Firstly, he suggests that demons can be conceived of as real entities with the power to create suffering of disaster on personal or global scales. Oftentimes, they are seen to be dissatisfied spirits of ancestors who haunt their descendants because of some ill-fated conditions surrounding their death. Perhaps it boiled down to inadequate funerary arrangements. From this perspective, contact between the spiritual and mundane realms is the norm. If a haunting is determined to be an ancestor, then there are certain measures taken to appease or placate the spirit. If the ghost is deemed a stranger, however, to the family, an exorcism is required. The following three perspectives relate more to Mahayana. Yang refers to them as non-dualist, the psychological, and the skillful means views. The non-dualist outlook springs from the Buddhist notion that all realms, mundane and supernatural, contain inter-reliant deities, demons, and sentient beings. Their flowing migrations between assorted realms relates to the belief that they are aspects of the same. From this perspective, even the various worlds or realms are degrees of the same. As a result, the nature of being contains both the divine and the demonic, and they are all codependently originating. As a result, demonic apparitions or afflictions are actually just elements of consciousness that are interacting with other elements of consciousness. So that's the non-dualist outlook. It kind of sees that there's not really a binary in the grand scheme of things, and that we're all, whether demonic or sentient, just beings along a path potentially towards enlightenment, or I guess hopefully. The psychological view renders that the demonic as being projections of the mind. Uh, The 12th century Tibetan Buddhist monk Milarepa saw them in this light as well. He did not see exorcisms as effective in relieving assaults from demons. Instead, he dispelled of them by seeing them as the mind's projections, and as a result, as inherently empty, albeit tricky and illusory. Finally, the skillful means view holds that depending on where one is in their path to enlightenment, they could actually be assisted by demons on their quest. Demons, like Mara, would be emanations from the wheel of samsara and function to stimulate ideal rebirths for sentient beings. As mentioned, within the Tibetan tradition, chanting of the Heart Sutra is the supreme way to confront demonic intrusions into one's life in the present and going forth on the path to awakening. Continuing in the Tibetan realm and considering Buddhism, Matthew Kapstein is a scholar of Tibetan religions. In his book entitled Tibetan Buddhism, A Very Short Introduction, provides a case study that encapsulates the meeting of two religions, the indigenous Bon and Buddhism, as experienced by a family of farmers. The story is as follows. While visiting a Lama in the 1970s, Kapstein and the Lama were interrupted by a perturbed local farming husband and wife. 
The prior evening, a demon brought fury into their cattle shed, creating sparks and crackling noises, which almost resulted in a stampede. The couple asked the llama to let them know what a vile act they had committed to warrant the demon's wrath. How were they to pacify it? The couple asked for the llama's protection and provided some money as well as fresh curds from their cattle as offerings. The llama asked them to repeat in detail the sequence of events the night prior, and it seemed that there was an odd meteorological occurrence of ball lightning. The Lama consulted his astrological almanac and, after studying it, rolled some divinatory dice while enumerating combinations on a rosary. When finished, soothingly, the Lama comforted the couple and told them that nothing was revealed that was serious, the livestock would be safe, and the family would not come to harm. It was due to a roaming and elemental ruckus, the result of slight faults of past karma. To cleanse their karma and mollify their current predicament, the couple had to practice daily the rite of sang, which involved fumigation with incense in dedication to the spirits of the environment. They were also to recite Om Mani Padme Hum, which is Bodhisattva Avalokitevsa's mantra, and they were to recite that 1,000 times. The most important piece for them was to remain unafraid. If they could do all of this, the problem would go away. Ultimately, they were to connect to compassion, and this was the way to restore harmony. Capstein says that in a general religious sense, Tibetans eschew bad karma and demonic disruptions and assume meritorious rites and purifications. These serve as the essential aims of religious life. According to Capstein, daily matters that occupy and maintain the spirituality of the majority of Tibetans are related to maintaining, not transcending, the natural order of life in order to safeguard bountiful harvests, productive livestock, and safe families. Adversaries, demonic or human, are to be tended to and made ineffectual. It is therefore accepted that for the majority of their time, Buddhist officials in Tibet minister to these types of needs. Capstein explains that adherents of Bon, the indigenous Tibetan religion, are likely enmeshed within the Buddhist paradigm, just as Vajrayana is with Bon. Practically, Bon and Buddhist practitioners are evenly concerned with maintaining equilibrium with resident deities and demons. In practice, followers of both Bon and Buddhism are equally concerned with maintaining harmony with local spirits and demons while avoiding spiritual pollution. The final foray of this episode is on feeding your demons, a contemporary iteration of an old practice. Tsultram Alioni is an American writer and Buddhist nun who is ordained in the Tibetan tradition by His Holiness the 16th Karmapa in Bodh Gaya, India in 1970. She's returned to lay life to become a mother, teacher, researcher, and writer, and has long pursued ways to integrate Buddhist wisdom into lay life. Alioni took an interest in the 11th century female Buddhist teacher, Machi Glabdron, who developed the unique spiritual practice known as Chi mentioned earlier. According to Alioni, Labdron's meditation became very popular in her time, spreading throughout the Buddhist world and beyond. It seeks to harmonize the polarization humans often experience when they are suffering by integrating and nurturing those aspects of our experience as opposed to battling them in an attempt to subdue. Alioni has since been recognized as an emanation of Maciej Glabdron. When considering the role of the shadow, Cha both predates and could be seen to encompass contemporary Western psychotherapeutic understandings that emphasize turning into our problematic aspects as a way to understand them, so that we can do the work of improving our lives. Alioni asserts that until the shadow is exposed and integrated, it remains inconspicuous, sabotaging our best efforts and potentially harming others in the process. Shining the light of awareness onto our hidden parts, eliminates its damaging potential and unleashes the life energy stored in it. 
The fascinating and unique aspect of Cha is that instead of taking up a position of resistance to our demons as a means to shun them, the orientation is instead one of giving them what they require, in a sense, nourishing them. According to Alioni, demons represent our fixations and terrors, as well as chronic diseases or ailments such as depression, anxiety, or addictions. Essentially, they are born out of ourselves and represent the aspects we resist and seek to dismiss. They destabilize our best selves. Alioni explains that Machig Labron's Cha meditation seeks to reform these inner forces instead of denying them. Alioni relates, quote, When Machig was asked to define demons, she replied this way, What we call demons are not materially existing individuals with huge black forms, frightening and terrifying anyone who sees them. Demon means anything which hinders liberation, end quote. Alioni says that fundamentally, under the superficial desire of a demon is the need for love, compassion, and acceptance. Alioni crafted a practice of envisaging, speaking with, and feeding demons that produces palpable results when it comes to transcending one's shadows and thus leading to healing. She refers to this exercise as a five-point method called feeding your demons, which has been developed out of the Tibetan Cha meditation. Alioni is well-versed in both traditional and secularized Cha forms. She has taught this for over 35 years and, most recently, at her Colorado-based retreat center, Tara Mandala. Here is a brief outline of Alioni's five-point process of feeding one's demons. It starts by setting aside at least half an hour and a quiet space wherein one will not be interrupted. The person is to choose a place to sit and to place an empty chair across from them so that it faces them. This is for the demon. Alioni suggests that it is important to keep one's eyes closed for the duration so that a person can remain focused and to assist in visualizing the demon. The first aspect is just simply setting the scene, as we would have already done with with the chairs. At this point, the person, with their eyes closed, takes nine deep relaxational breaths with long exhalations. For the first three breaths, one is to visualize the breath traveling to points of tension across the body and releasing them. For the second three breaths, one is to send the breath to areas of emotional tension. And for the final three breaths, they are to be directed to mental tension, such as anxiety or worry that is being stored in the body. Then, one seeks to stimulate their motivation by generating heartfelt enthusiasm for the practice, for the well-being of oneself, and all beings. The first step is called finding the demon. At this point, the practitioner decides upon the demon that they most want to work with. Then they locate where in their body the demon is held most strongly. Then they focus on intensifying the sensation felt there. They are to enhance awareness of the characteristic sensations in this bodily region, like color, texture, and temperature. Step two, personifying the demon and asking it what it needs. Here the practitioner anthropomorphizes the sensations as a creature with arms, legs, and eyes, and witnesses it facing them. If an inanimate object appears, the practitioner is to imagine what it would look like if personified. Becoming acquainted with as many characteristics as possible is helpful, like gender, colors, surfaces, size, emotional states, its eyes, etc. The practitioner is encouraged to seek out novel qualities in their demon the more they practice. 
Then they are to ask their demon three questions. What do you want from me? What do you need from me? And how will you feel if you get what you need? Alioni highlights that it is important to distinguish the demon's wants from its needs because they may be different. On a banal level, I may want a carrot, but I may need nourishment. I will feel satiated and content when this need is met. Upon asking these questions and receiving an answer, immediately the person is to switch places with the demon by sitting in their seat. Step 3. Becoming the demon. Next, the practitioner is to give themselves some time to inhabit the demon's realm or experience. The practitioner is encouraged to see how their normal self looks from the demon's point of view. Then, the practitioner is to answer the three questions. What I want from you is... What I need from you is, and when my need is met, I will feel. So it's essentially just switching positions um, and putting oneself in, in the shoes, so, or the metaphorical shoes of the demon. Step four is feeding the demon and meeting the ally. Here, the practitioner then returns to their original position, settles in, and sees the demon before them. Next, they visualize themselves dissolving their body into nectar that has the characteristic of the emotion that the demon would feel when its need was quenched. That's the answer to the third question. Feeding the demon then comes next, feeding them that nectar to its total gratification, imagining the sap entering the demon any way it desires, and then just keep feeding it until it's wholly satisfied. This practice can be repeated every day for as long as the person needs until the demon changes. A person may practice daily for a month and then return to it less often, but still consistently. If the demon seems insatiable at first, that is, it just keeps wanting to drink and drink and drink more nectar, then the practitioner is encouraged to imagine how it would look if the demon were completely satisfied. They can always return to the practice the following day and give it more nectar. At this juncture, the practitioner can go to step 5, or they can meet their ally. If there is another being present in place of the demon, when the fourth step is ended, ask this being if it is your ally. If it is not, invite the ally to make an appearance. If the demon has disappeared, then simply ask the ally to appear. In a similar way, take note of all the characteristics of the ally. Meeting the ally. Alioni writes, Ask it one or all of these questions. How will you help me? How will you protect me? What pledge or commitment do you make to me? How can I gain access to you? Then, change places, become the ally, and answer the questions above, speaking as the ally. I will help you by, I will protect you by, I pledge I will, you can gain access to me by... The practitioner then returns to their original position and feels the help and protection coming from the ally to them, and then imagines the ally dissolving into them. The practitioner and the ally dissolve into emptiness, which naturally takes them to the fifth and final step. Step five, rest in awareness. The practitioner then relaxes in the state they find themselves in when the ally dissolves into them, and then the practitioner dissolves into emptiness. The practitioner mindfully experiences without trying to will any further experiences and without rushing to end the process. 
All of this is from Tsultrum Alioni's book, Feeding Your Demons. This is an abbreviated version of the Cha practice. Alioni's Feeding Your Demons goes into much deeper detail and even offers more specific strategies for tackling specific afflictions that tend to be pervasive in contemporary society, such as eating disorders, addictions, and depression demons. I recommend her book if you are interested in further exploring practical ways to engage with this inner work. I hope this podcast provided insight and sparked curiosity into the role of demons cross-culturally and historically. I also hope that you gained a little insight or some motivation to uncover the demons in your own life so that you might become more empowered to live more fully and freely. Thank you for listening. Before I sign off, I'll close with a quote from Machik Labdron. With a loving mind, cherish more than a child. The hostile gods and demons of a parent existence and tenderly surround yourself with them. Mm-hmm.